When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we are paying tribute to Jeff Beck, who just died unexpectedly at the age of 78. He was one of the greatest electric guitarists who ever lived, and a key figure in the history of rock and roll. We have a never-before-heard interview with Jeff himself, talking about some key moments of his life and career. It was conducted by our own Corey Groh back in 2018. We have a brand new interview with Mike Campbell, one of my favorite guitarists, who of course was the guitarist and a key songwriter with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He also has his own band, The Dirty Knobs. We have a new interview with Joe Satriani, another incredibly legendary guitarist who of course has his own solo career. And we also have a new interview with Vernon Reed, the incredible guitarist of Living Color. So we've got a lot going on in this episode. Before we get into all of that, I wanted to go over as quickly as possible an overview of Jeff Beck's very complicated and accomplished career with our friend Andy Green. Hey, Andy. Hey, Brian. Good to be here. To start at the beginning, Jeff Beck's mom wanted him to play piano, much as was the case with Eddie Van Halen. But unlike Eddie Van Halen, he did not become a prize-winning classical pianist. In fact, he took a key off his piano so they'd stop making him play it, started making these homemade guitars. That's how badly he wanted to play guitar. And his influences early on helped contribute to the very different vocabulary that he had compared to his peers, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page. He was a huge fan of Cliff Gallup, who was the rockabilly artist Gene Vincent's guitarist. He loved Les Paul, who was, of course, the pioneering jazz guitarist who invented a lot of multi-tracking stuff. It was really aggressive for, you know, it would be this kind of very old-timey pop music in the pre-rock sense. And then all of a sudden, there's this incredibly aggressive and cool Les Paul solo. So he, was, he really was predicting a lot of this stuff. And Les Paul also, of course, creator of the Les Paul guitar. But yes. basically, his vocabulary, because of this rockabilly stuff and the jazz influences, when he got into blues, he had a different approach, and he got into blues because of his friend who was Ian Stewart, and Ian Stewart was, of course, an original member of the Rolling Stones, eventually bumped out for various reasons, including not being cute enough, and so he was, became a touring member of the Stones, but was an important part of the Stones' stories, but that's how small this world was. And even though he had all of these different influences in 1962 London on that club scene, so much of it was blues-based music that he almost had to learn and play that stuff. And he got really into it, was quite good at it. He had a, a close friend as a teenager. His friend was named Jimmy Page. Again, very small, bizarrely small world. And they both were preternaturally gifted guitar players. And by 1964, he was playing professionally with a band called the Tridents and also doing recording sessions. People think of Jimmy Page as the guy who did session recording, but actually Jeff Beck was as well. 
And basically, there was this band called the Yardbirds, incredible band. Their guitarist was a guy named Eric Clapton. And Eric Clapton was, at the time, a very obstinate blues purist, very serious about that stuff. Uh, the irony is, of course, he would then do tons of ballads and stuff many years later that had absolutely nothing to do with the blues. But at the time, he was this kind of, think of like a very angry, young sort of punk purist or something like that. And that's the way to think of Eric Clapton with the blues. Right. And so then they have this big hit that's called For Your Love. That's just a genuine pop song. And even though it was a breakthrough to the charts, he hated it. Eric hated it. He was sulky and angry on tour and just a real pain in the ass by his own admission. Eric Clapton is out of the picture. The Yardbirds, who had this incredible, like the hottest guitarist in London was their guitarist, needed a new guitarist, huge slot open. They approach Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page says, nah, but I have this friend. You may not have heard of him, but he's really good. And that's Jeff Beck. So Jeff Beck joins the Yardbirds and he immediately they have this song called Heartful of Soul. And if, uh, Eric Clapton, of course, was convinced that they'd be washed up without him. They were over. Heartful of Soul becomes their biggest hit. Jeff plays this incredibly cool riff on it, replacing what was supposed to be a sitar part, and they're off to the races. <laughs> the Yardbirds with Jeff, they realized that he could play everything Eric Clapton could play, but also more. The guys in the Yardbirds, who would know, were convinced that Jeff was a better guitar player than Eric Clapton, straight yeah. up. And a lot of these Yardbirds songs that were hits back then, you don't really hear now. They didn't really make it through the generations because they were more of a live act than a studio act the same way as like Paul Butterfield Blues Band or Buffalo Springfield. The people who saw them live really got it and still love it. And people later on, they don't really appreciate just how important this group was. Yeah, you have to look for the stuff that captures what was great about them. I mean, Shapes of Things is an incredible song. It's so good. Shapes of things before my eyes Just teach me to despise Super psychedelic. It's so good that Jeff would later redo it just a few years later with the Jeff Beck group in a heavier version. Uh, over, under, sideways, down is cool. If you listen to their studio version of I'm a Man, in the last oh, yeah. sort of minute of it, they do this full sort of, they used to call it a rave up, which was their equivalent of like when the Who would go nuts on stage. It was as much sort of garage explosion as blues. That's the thing. Jeff always called them a punk band in retrospect. And also, when he heard the White Stripes, he said, that's what we were, the Yardbirds, this garage band doing a noisy version of the blues. Yeah, so that's a better way to think of the Yardbirds as opposed to a blues purist yeah, band. It's so tempting to just view them as the band who launched Clapton and started Zeppelin and launched Jeff Beck and forget their contributions as their own group. Absolutely. But... You know, it gets complicated, like all Jeff Beck stories do. Basically, 
they needed a bass player one night. Their bass player kind of exited, and Jimmy Page was available, despite <laughs> not being a bass player. I mean, that's the thing. Like, there, if you can play guitar, you can play bass. No offense to bass players, but you sure. you can at least fake it. It works the same way. And so Jimmy Page comes in as the bass player, and that was actually, ironically, despite them being really close friends, was the beginning of the end of Jeff Beck in the Yardbirds. So gradually through, again, a complex series of events, Jimmy Page becomes the second lead guitarist on stage with Jeff Beck. This should have been like, oh my God, they're going to become the greatest band the world has ever known. But instead, Jeff starts not liking this, kind of understandably. It was his own fault. He thought it would take some of the pressure off of him. He thought it would be amazing. But in fact, it, it started really bumming him out. Sometimes Jimmy would be on stage and because they were sharing duties, would play Jeff solos from one of the recorded songs. And Jeff would stand there hearing the audience applaud Jimmy Page for playing his solo. He just couldn't take it. It was bad for his ego. <laughs> These friends started having tension. And then it gets really confusing again because Jeff, when the Yardbirds were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, did this whole funny thing, supposedly complaining about the Yardbirds kicking him out. But actually, it's quite clear, and we'll hear Jeff say this himself later in the episode, that Jeff quit. Jeff quit the Yardbirds. He wasn't thrown out of the Yardbirds. And he says he did so in, in part to go back to a girlfriend instead of touring. So anyway, while he was in the Yardbirds, and again, things get confusing, everything is out of order in his history, he'd actually recorded what would become one of his greatest songs. The managers of the Yardbirds had this idea that they should all do solo stuff, kind of like Kiss a decade later. And he, <laughs> he recorded this amazing song called Bex Bolero with Jimmy Page on board, with Keith Moon from The Who on drums, with Nicky Hopkins, the great piano player, played with The Stones on piano. It's this incredible kind of like micro-prog proto-prague song. It's only three minutes long, but it goes through three movements. It's mind-blowing. Again, just everything is in dispute. Jimmy Page claims he actually wrote this song. And in fact, Jimmy Page has the writing credit for it. Jeff Beck claims he wrote it. So it's very, again, very messy, but an incredible sort of hint of things to come and totally instrumental. Another thing that hints at what was to come. So Jeff Beck then has management who are convinced he can become a pop star. And they ask him, can he sing? And he's like, no. And they're like, great, sing anyway. So he, he records a song called Hi Ho Silver Lining. And it's actually a big hit in England. Big hit. He's forced to sort of perform it at big events for many decades to come. And England always reluctantly, sometimes he would mime vomiting before he played it. He hates this song. He hates singing. And then at the same time, he, he begins pursuing a non-pop career. He has a vision for a big, hard-rocking, blues rock band, an evolution off the Yardbirds. And he puts together the Jeff Beck group. And he has a promising young singer, promising young everything, named Rod Stewart as his singer. And he has Ron Wood playing with him. And Nicky Hopkins, the most fantastic piano player on piano. And this is a group that could have and should have been Led Zeppelin. It was and did very much what Led Zeppelin would do on what probably stands as Jeff Beck's greatest album, Truth from 1968, uh, and they did a song called You Shook Me. You know you shook me. You shook me. A blues cover, and it's absolutely tremendous. With an organ player on it whose name is John Paul Jones. <laughs> That's right. 
And this album is an absolute rock classic, and a classic rock radio never played any of it. But this was so good that when Led Zeppelin came out, there were people, including Rolling Stones critic at the time, John Mendelssohn, who was just like, this is an inferior version of the Jeff Beck group. And now it turns out that it wasn't just listeners who thought that. It, Jeff Beck also thought that and was truly appalled when he heard that Led Zeppelin did You Shook Me as well. You know you shook me. You shook me all. What's funny is Jimmy Page claimed to have no idea that the Jeff Beck group did it six months earlier and it was all news to him when his own bass player played on it. That's right. And, you know, what we know now of Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck is that they're closest of friends as they were when they were young. What I think some of us who are younger maybe didn't quite realize is that for the entire 70s, it wasn't that good between them until really the death of John Bonham and then they, they publicly reconciled. But there was definitely tension. Jeff Beck felt thoroughly ripped off by Zeppelin and thrown off his game for a lot of complicated reasons. And he also, they had very poor management. He was simultaneously being pushed to try to do this solo pop career and trying to do this big rock band. And so he was torn in different directions. There was tension in the band. Nicky Hopkins blamed Jeff for not keeping the thing together, that they could have been the greatest rock band the world ever knew. They made another album called Beckola, which is very good, but perhaps not quite as good as Truth. But there's very good stuff on it. They yeah. toured America, and they were booked to play at the Woodstock Arts and Music <laughs> Festival. And they were on the poster for it, and in an altered universe, they play Woodstock, they crush it, they're in the Woodstock movie, they keep going through the 70s, and things could have been very different. But like a couple, like a week or two before Woodstock, the band breaks up, and they don't make it there. That's right. I should mention there's a couple... There's a song called Plinth on Beck Ola that's incredible. There's a song called Rice Pudding that has a very Zeppelin-like riff on it. So, amazing stuff, great band. There also was an issue of just, there was a songwriting issue. Jeff Beck never considered himself a songwriter. And they didn't have, the Jeff Beck group didn't have the son of songwriting powerhouse that was the combination of Jimmy Page or a drummer as good as John Bonham. And there's this image of Jeff, and Jeff was this anti-commercial maverick. He did whatever he wanted in his career. But the truth is, he was pretty fucking bummed to see his friend, his teenage friend's band, Led Zeppelin, who sounds quite a lot like something he literally did first become these absolutely untouchable rock gods he lost his robert Plant very quickly and then watched that person become one of the single biggest stars of the 70s and the 80s and watch led zeppelin become the biggest band of the 70s and he did well but was somewhat on the sidelines like watching his former collaborators make millions and millions and be superstars that's right. And he did try to keep Rod Stewart. He was hoping he could build a new band around him and Rod Stewart, which could have worked. But Rod had this offer from a record label where it's like, you can make solo records and you can be in the faces. 
And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And that was that. And that worked very well. Yeah, Rod Stewart, everything has worked out very well for Rod Stewart. <laughs> so basically, Jeff thought he could build a supergroup with the rhythm section from the band Vanilla Fudge. He later would actually do this. It would become Beck, Bogart, and a piece. But what happened was Jeff had a serious car accident. He had already had a skull fracture when he was a kid. Now he had a new injury nearby. And he was all messed up. So Beck Bogart and a piece didn't happen for several years later. It actually gets, this is another thing that's very confusing. It almost happened around 69. Then it did not happen then. And so instead he puts together another version of Jeff Beck group that is actually pretty peculiar. He's trying to do funk and R&B. He actually does sort of wah-wah thing on one song. That That comes out a few weeks before a theme from Shaft. So he's in that vein, but it was very confusing to fans. It didn't work out. So then he collaborates with Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder is doing Talking Book and the label puts them together and he does some really cool playing on Talking Book. And if you listen to the song Looking for Another Pure Love, which I would encourage everyone to do. That's what we just heard a sample from. You'll really hear Jeff Beck at his best. Rod Stewart said after his death that he was one of the few guitarists who really listened to what he was singing and responded to it. And you can just hear him in total sync with Stevie Wonder on this very delicate ballad, really out of what you might think of Jeff's bag at the time. And it's just spectacular. It makes you wish they had basically started a band together. And the idea was that Stevie Wonder would, in exchange, write him a song. And he's in the studio with Stevie. And this, again, gets muddy. But the, the story that Jeff tells is that Jeff was messing around on drums. He could play drums a little bit. And he played a beat. And Stevie wrote the riff to Superstition over it and then wrote the whole song. And the idea was that was going to be a song for Jeff Beck. And Jeff actually recorded it with the then version of the Jeff Beck group. That version has never even been heard. <laughs> what happened instead was Motown heard this song and was like, no, no, Stevie, you record this. And it became the signature, huge, enormous hit of Talking Book and a Stevie Wonder signature song. So Jeff was very pissed about that. And then, so then from there, he does do, after all, Beck Bogart and a piece several years after his original idea. And by then, it's a little bit dated. It would have been huge in 69, 70, but it was, it was bombastic and a little bit more of a cream throwback in 73. And they do record Superstition. And the other problem, and then here's, here's where Jeff Beck becomes, it's so funny, he is the meanest critic of his own career. This is what he said about Beck Bogart in a piece. He said, the problem was that we didn't have a singer and we didn't have any songs. Because <laughs> they didn't. They didn't Small have a, problem. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have a front man that Bogart and a piece both sang together, like harmonized, like Van Halen, if all you had was Michael Anthony and Eddie Van Halen's backing vocals and no real star lead vocalist. 
Yeah, it was a problem through his whole career of who's going to sing these songs. So at least they tried. They did sing, but they didn't have a front man. And it wasn't. And again, it's the musician's contempt for just, you know, the front man shaking his ass. That's always comes out. The, the guys who are hardcore players, they hate the idea that some good looking guy who just stands up there and right. sings and shakes their but, butt will be the star. But you need that. If you don't have a yes. David Lee Roth or a Mick Jagger or a Robert Plant, right. the ceiling right. is very low for you. That, that's right. So what happens is around the time he's playing with Beck Bogart in a piece, Jeff hears an album that totally changes his musical direction. That album is called Spectrum, and it's by Billy Cobham, who was the drummer of Mahavishnu Orchestra. And that is a very important album. It was a huge influence on Prince. It was a very important fusion album with a lot of cool, accessible songs. There's a song called Stratus. That's really awesome. It's also, by the way, an influence on Eddie Van Halen. And so he's entranced by this music. He gets really into fusion. He gets really into John McLaughlin, who's the guitarist for Mahavishnu Orchestra. And all of a sudden, he's off to the races. He has a totally different direction. He teams up for the first time with a really great producer, to say the least, George Martin of Beatles fame, and makes Blow by Blow, which a totally instrumental album with a lot of fusion influences. Now, it's important to, I've realized that Jeff was, by his own admission, sort of faking it with jazz. He didn't really know how to play jazz. He wasn't as, he, he was going by instinct. So he wasn't really a jazz player. He was a very gifted rock player doing his own take on jazz fusion. But it really, really worked. It, ironically, despite being an all-instrumental album, it became his biggest album. To date, a key track, of course, was his version of Stevie Wonder's Because We've Ended as Lovers, which was first recorded by Sarita, I think, the year before. And it's just this beautiful lyrical guitar performance. On the heavier end, I know a lot of people really love the track Freeway Jam from that record. made another album called Wired that I even kind of like a little better, a little bit more aggressive, but in the same vein. Jeff, of course, being his own hardest critic, by the 80s, he was dismissing his entire fusion phase. He said it bordered on easy listening and yeah, called it which Fusac. is such a shame because those records are so beloved by guitar freaks. He was able to really tour off the love of those records for the rest of his life in a lot of ways. He just loves to like put himself down. But I, and he also, of course, played a lot of the material live. So I don't know how seriously we could take that. But he also said, which I think is really interesting, the reason he didn't just become a jazz player is because he just wasn't one. Like, he's like, I right. never studied that stuff. I'd have to go back and study jazz from the beginning. And I wasn't really re interested or willing to do that. So that was actually more of a diversion a very popular diversion than the whole future of his career. So after Blow by Blow and Wired, he's kind of fully established as a solo artist who's just a guitarist who can sustain a career doing instrumentals. And that's what he kind of does. There's a four-year gap between Wired and his next album. He did an album called There and Back, which wasn't as a big a hit. And then he, the 80s were a weird time for him where he did a lot of different stuff that included a lot of collaborations. He was the guitarist for two Mick Jagger solo albums. He almost toured with Mick Jagger, but pulled out when he realized that he would be sitting there playing Keith Richards licks. Well, 
And we should mention, right, Andy, that he, I think, twice was invited to join the Stones. And in the 70s, after McTower left, actually jammed with the Stones. A sort, of, And it, it did not work out. Yeah, so he could have been a Rolling Stone. And Nick Mason said when Sid Barrett left, there was at least talking Pink Floyd of hiring him to be their new guitarist. So there's alternate universes where he's in the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd. I can't picture that either of those, they would have worked out for very long. He would not have been second fiddle to Roger Waters or background to to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I just can't picture any of it like lasting for over an album or two. But we should mention again in the 80s, not only did he play on the two Mick Jagger songs, he also played on Roger Waters' Amused to Death. So he did get to be in both the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd. And he also played on Private Dancer right. in the he, 80s. Which is, I love that song. It's written by Dire Straits' Mark Knopfler. Jeff Beck sucks on it. His solo is complete shit. Now, I know that's not just your opinion. I know Mark Knopfler kind of thinks that. But honestly, I just listened to it and it's totally fine. But, you know, you and Mark Knopfler are entitled to your opinions. No, it's no, I love Jeff Beck. It's not his best work, but it's sort of interesting. <laughs> in the 80s, he becomes a guitarist for hire. He'll come to the studio if you're Tina Turner or whoever and just play on your record. He played on the Twins soundtrack. He did a lot of different stuff. Yeah. He, in 1985, under a lot of pressure, in the 80s, labels lost patience with sort of experimentation. They wanted hits. So under a lot of commercial pressure, he made an attempt at a commercial album in 1985 called Flash. He got Nile Rodgers to produce it. Of course, the legendary Nile Rodgers. But Nile Rodgers was very distracted. He was working on, he was supposed to be working on a Madonna album too. Jeff said that Madonna would literally like poke her head in the studio and be like, how's it going with Nile? Can, can I get him back? You know, so that eventually didn't work. And so he got Arthur Baker instead, the producer of Planet Rock, who of course did Sun City and the remixes to Born USA, incredibly important producer of the 80s. And what worked on that album is he reunited with Rod Stewart for one song and that we should jump back he reunited with rod stewart for one song people get ready it hit number 48 but the previous year he played guitar rod stewart's infatuation which was a big hit and that was the year they tried to tour right yeah rod invited him on a tour like a 78 date tour that was in arenas and the plan was that jeff plays first and he comes out in the middle of Rod's set for five or six songs. And it lasted about four shows. Jeff later said that he couldn't stand watching Rod shake his ass on stage. It is just he couldn't take it. And Rod also said that Jeff told him that he didn't like playing to an audience full of, quote, housewives, which isn't very nice. I would imagine for him, for his ego, to be the support act to his former lead singer and be in that role and playing to half-empty crowd that wasn't even listening to him. I'm sure for his ego, it was just too much to handle. Absolutely. And then, so something really interesting happens. He, and you have to understand, through all these years, Jeff was perfectly happy to spend years at a time hanging out in rural England working on his cars. He was perfectly happy to do that instead of being in the music industry. He loved doing that. He didn't feel this need to constantly be out there, and he had no interest in being famous. But what happens is guitar starts becoming 
very commercial again. It had already started with Van Halen in around 77, but there's this huge wave of post-Van Halen guitar players, including instrumental acts, including who we talked to in this episode, Joe Satriani, had a, a successful solo album just playing guitar instrumental surfing with the alien and there's this whole market of like guitar heads who are dying for guitar instrumental albums and so jeff beck is like, hey i'm pretty good at that and he yeah. comes back with a jeff beck's guitar shop some of the 80s production maybe you know hasn't aged that well it's still a little 80s but it's a very strong and confident album and it's really a rock instrumental album and there's some really cool stuff on that album as as i talk about with vernon reed there's this extraordinary song called where were you? What he did was he would play a harmonic, which is like that pinging high noise that you get off the guitar, and then make it into different notes by moving the whammy bar, which is an incredibly crazy and bold technique, a completely backwards and crazy way of playing guitar, but he achieved a very unique and emotional effect from it. And a lot of that song is played that way, and that's like a touchstone for people. Satriani talks about that. So anyway, here he's made, like at least for Guitar Heads, another kind of classic album. He tours a lot, but generally has no singer on his tours, which is pretty unusual. So. He's playing theaters and large clubs. He couldn't really scale it all that much without a singer or real hit songs or anything. To a certain extent, by this point, seems to have resigned himself to that. He said in the 80s, I look at Eric Clapton and I don't envy any of that. And this was when Eric Clapton was conquering the world. He had a real aversion to basically doing anything he didn't want to do. I mean, look at, he had opportunity to tour with Mick Jagger. He had opportunity to tour alongside Rod Stewart. He pulled out of both. So he just did his thing. He did a rockabilly tribute album. He then started to get into, <laughs> he started to get into like uh, jungle and techno genuinely. And he made an album called Who Else that gets into that vein. And then another one called You Had It Coming. Somewhere in there, he is on a Beatles tribute album made for George Martin. And a lot of the stuff on that album is forgettable, but he records a version of A Day in the Life that became a live staple, and it's just astonishing. Takes the entire melody and does it on guitar. Yeah, it's, it is the best cover of that song ever, which is insane a ton, because that song, it can't be covered, but he does the definitive cover that has no vocals on it. He plays vocal melody himself, and I've seen him play at giant arenas. It just kills the crowd. I want to say I've been to many Hall of Fames in the past 20 years or so. I've been to most of them. But when he got in solo and played Bex Bolero and then Paige came out and they did some immigrant song together and then went back into Bex Bolero, it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life at an induction or really any concert. Just the two of them playing together was so magnetic and awesome. Yeah. And I, like I said, it, it really was, again, after the death of John Bonham, those two reconciled their pals. He's pals with Eric Clapton, too. They toured together not that long ago. He had a very successful 2000s. He did a big Hollywood Bowl show that was all just a celebration of Jeff Beck. And the thing is, unlike Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page, his playing kept evolving, kept doing new techniques and new sounds, whereas Clapton, I don't think, has ever done anything no. new with his playing since the 70s. No, and so they toured together in 2009 or 10. I saw their show at the Garden, and the encore was them just playing together, and they were playing back and forth. And from my perspective, Beck just smoked him. 
He was so much better. He just ran circles around Clapton on that stage. It was awesome to watch. When Jeff worked with B.B. King in the early 2000s, B.B. King flat out said he's the best rock player, basically dissing a lot of these other guys. I think as a, as a pure player, Beck was probably better than Clapton and Page. He just wasn't a songwriter. He wasn't interested in hits. He would come in and blow minds. And also, those guys never... Jeff Beck did hundreds of concerts that were instrumental concerts, no singer and held audiences, delighted audiences, and that takes some doing. To do that on a pretty big scale, he wasn't playing stadiums with that setup, but to do that so successfully is an incredible achievement, no doubt. Yeah, and what's great is that in 2019 at Hollywood Bowl, he was on a double bill finally with him and Rod Stewart, and they did a long set of of encores as a duo, a bunch of songs that they last played together in, in the 60s. So it was nice at the very end of his life, he was finally able to get back with Rod and play those songs again. Yeah, I'm glad that happened. Although I think both of us talking to Rod over the years were pushing them to really do something. Rod wanted to do a big tour, he want, and he wanted to do a, a blues album with Beck, and Beck just wasn't interested in that, which is too bad. And I think part of it is he would have been in a subordinate position, and he never wanted that. He wasn't willing to take that. So, yeah, that's the theme of his whole career. He was not willing to take a back seat, really, to anybody. But definitely one of the boldest and most uncompromising careers of the, of the key 60s rockers. And the yeah. final year of his life, he was with Johnny Depp. And they recorded an album together and toured together. That also happened. Uh, yes. And so, and I will say that Beck does some great playing on that. But in the scheme of... I know fans of that actor will be upset to hear this, but in the scheme of this vast career, that's a very minor point. It's hardly an, a career-defining moment. The guy of did so much more than that. But great playing even on that. And Andy, thanks so much. There's so much more, but we'll, we'll be hearing it from Jeff himself and from Vernon Reed and from Mike Campbell and from Joe Satriani. Thanks for joining me. Sure, of course. And thank you. And next up is my conversation with Mike Campbell about Jeff Beck's legacy. For me, your most uh, blatant Jeff Beck moment in your own catalog is probably on Mojo, certainly mm. as far as a Jeff Beck group influence. I would agree on that. The Mojo record was live on the floor and built around a, a 59 Les Paul sound, which I guess Jeff used that sometimes. Mostly he was a Stratocaster player, but it was very uh, live and... Yard birdsy, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, and definitely uh, in the mode of Clapton, Beck, and Page. And that, that spirit, especially a song, Good Enough, which is very uh, melodic. Tell me about encountering Jeff Beck's playing as a young person and, and how it mm. impacted you and how it ultimately influenced you as a player. When I was a young player learning the guitar, it was a great time for guitar players. You had Beck and Page and Clapton and Hendrix and all those great players. It was the triumvirate. Clapton, Beck, and Page were the three British guys that were on the scene, all coming out of the Yardbirds, which I love that band, so I was tuned into them. And Jeff just stood out. I was just in awe of his playing. He came from what I could tell, like I said, I didn't know him, but his playing 
suggested some Scotty Moore rockabilly. He do that really well, but he could also veer off into psychedelia at times and blues, but not just standard blues. He always had a personality in his blues that was almost comical sometimes and quirky, but very original and inspiring. So to hear him play out of those three, the Clapton and Page and Beck, they all influenced me and uh, stood out the most in terms of just really, I don't know, spontaneous, quirky, but melodic stuff. It was like, it was always surprising. Like, ooh, where'd that, where was he going? How did he come up with that? Off the charts a little bit, but always really cool. And that impressed me a lot. Plus, he looked great. <laughs> he had the rock star haircut. He was always good looking. And one of the things that, obviously, his evolution after the Yardbirds and after Jeff Beck group was very different than Page and Clapton. Obviously, the fusion stuff and beyond that he did was a whole other level of evolution. What did you make of that? That's not the kind of stuff you play, but... Right. I'm not a fusion enthusiast, uh, but I could appreciate that he was really good at that. But I was more drawn to his melodic playing. And he did evolve. That Truth album was really good. I was listening to that this morning. And the guitar on that is so inspired. And bringing Rod Stewart in to sing was a wise move. But Jeff always seemed to be, he didn't want to be a, uh, out in the front that much. He didn't want to sing. He had that one single, but he so he didn't want to bother with that. He wanted to focus on the guitar. And it seems to me like he never chased the stardom, the celebrity. He seemed to shy away from it and just be a musician. And I think that was a respectable way to approach your career. And as you see, his albums progressed from Truth onto the George Martin stuff, like Blow by Blow. And then I really love this recent stuff he's been doing, his operatic kind of stuff, like with Pavarotti and those beautiful melodies of some of the classical music. I think that was pure genius. That's some of the best stuff that I, I think I like of his. It's so melodic and his tone is so clean and pure. So yeah, he went through quite a lot of morphosis through his career, but he always seemed to be a, a true guitar technician, really focused on it. And his precision was very impressive and intimidating that you could be that precise on the guitar and still be exciting. Were there specific things that you took from him as a player? Not took, but... Well, I hope so. I didn't consciously try to emulate him, although he did influence me. He got inside my head, the way he played and his spirit, his the freedom in his playing, the exuberance. And I saw him two or three times over his career. And he just had... There was a sense of humor in Jeff, too, in his, the way he played and, and his personality. I saw him once at the Shrine Auditorium, I don't know, in the 70s or 80s. And he came out and he had his Stratocaster and he put the head of the first thing he did, he put the head of the Stratocaster on the floor and he lifted up his feet where he was suspended and he spun around like a top. And then he picked it up and it was still in tune and he started playing. <laughs> Man, that guy is really in a great space in his head. He's having fun up there. So I don't know how anything specifically that influenced me other than just his exuberance and his love of playing. I could relate to that. I do think for a lot of rock fans, the Truth and Beck Ola are really continue to be touchstones. And like you, I was re-listening to both of those albums the past couple of days, and he was really doing stuff 
he always felt ahead of his time. Even if you go back, if he Bex Bolero, all that right. stuff felt a little bit a few years ahead of when he was recording it, which I don't know if it felt like that at the time listening to it. He was definitely um, stretching out. Like uh, some of the Yardbird stuff is, is very uh, raga, you know, the scales and... He would go into that mode, psychedelia. Uh, he just had such a wide palette. Uh, it was... And his tone... And you always got a good tone, and it just always seemed to jump off the record at you, grab your attention. And I was just inspired by him a lot. There would be notes here and there that, that's I didn't hear that in the scale, but that really works. Like, how did he find that? And, you know, um, I'd like to share, too. I did get to see him about 10 years ago in San Diego. And uh, I went to watch the show and I was just, you know, hypnotized by everything. So he did this thing on the guitar where he's playing the bottleneck. And he took it off his finger and held it in his hand. And he went way up on the neck above the frets in no man's land. And he was <laughs> tapping the bottle and playing this melody. And I don't know how you could do that. I've tried to do it. You can't find the notes without going at a pitch. But it was exactly perfect. And I remember thinking, like, that guy really spends a lot of time with the guitar. And it's really, and I need to practice. I'm not, if I'm going to be in this business, I got to work harder because he's obviously working harder than I am to be great. And that really impressed me. And one little humorous thing I did want to just say, it's goofy, but I read it. I saw an interview on YouTube the other day and he's the only other guy that I can say has owned up to the idea. They were asking about guitars and he said he has guitars in every room in the house. So do I. On almost every couch, there's a guitar. And even in the bathroom. <laughs> so he's the only other guy I've ever say, heard say that, which is also true of me, I'm embarrassed to say. But, you know, you're sitting down, it's there, it's nice acoustics. But I thought when he said that, I thought, that's cool. He's coming, he's a kindred spirit. Yeah, I used oh. to keep one sitting in the corner so I could reach it. And I actually came up with a couple of songs early in the morning. The acoustics are great in there and you're half awake. I don't know. I don't want to go into that. But I did relate to that when he said that. I thought that takes some some honesty to share that. True sign of a serious player, yes. Yeah. All right, cool. I won't keep you forever. I know I, the reason I was thinking of Mojo is because actually it was I went to Tom's house in Malibu for that album and he was talking about Jeff Beck Group. That's where I got that. He, he said that he always preferred, never got into Zep one, that he preferred Jeff Beck Group considerably, which is interesting. Yeah, I never heard him say that. We never discussed Jeff Beck at those sessions, but if that was on his mind, I guess it was. He heard it in what you were playing more than you did. Or maybe that's just where his head was at. You, you drop where your influences are, whatever inspires you. But he never said anything to make directly to me about that. But if I was ever compared to Jeff Beck, I would take that as a huge compliment on any level. <laughs> I can confirm that he did, in fact. That's, well, thank that's you for sharing that. For your, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%. My yeah, brother, I, I love him that. too. <laughs> But I don't hear any Rod Stewart in his voice. <laughs> and I imagine that you're probably still processing the Fleetwood Mac situation with the absence of, of Christine. Yeah, it's been a rough month. I mean, just the other day, Lisa Marie Presley died. But we went. I went to a memorial for Christine last week, and everybody was there, all the crew and the band. And she was, uh, I wasn't her best friend, but we were friends. And we had an affinity between us and a love. And she was so sweet. And it was very touching to to celebrate her life with those people again. And the thing with Jeff, too, I didn't know Jeff, but it's hit me really hard emotionally. Losing him and someone in that age group, it feels very kind of close and really 
gonna miss hearing him play what else what he was gonna do but i can go back and listen to what he's done but i'm surprised at how much it's it's made me sad to lose jeff back because he really was a special person special player and a real guitar player a serious guitar player he took it real serious and applied him his technique and his work to it doing the best he could and that's inspiring yeah man too much loss it's hard to i know <laughs> I don't want to think about what's up for the next five years, but we'll take it as it comes. <sighs> yeah, the yes, I yeah, I know. All exactly I will what you're say saying. is, I used to is to anybody that loves music, go see them, go see them while you can, because they're not always going to be here. Muddy Waters, how you know John Lee Hooker, now Jeff Beck, all of these great players, Jimi Hendrix, go see them while you can, because that's yeah. a gift to be able to see these great artists live, because someday it'll be in the past. So that's You're what so I keep right, thinking. Man. I don't want to get morbid. It's, yeah, no, and I think about, I'm so glad I got to see B.B. King and people like yeah, that. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. I'm so glad I got to see Jeff that night. But it, yeah. I remember when I was younger, I mean, I used I liked Jerry Garcia a lot, and he was always playing in L.A., and I thought, well, I'll go see him someday. And then it's like he was gone. I thought, oh, I wish I would have gone seen him, you know? I missed it. <laughs> so... If there's a lesson there, it's like people like Jeff, the true great artists, they're still out there. Go see them. Soak it up while you yeah, can. Well said, man. So now we're going to hear from Vernon Reed again of Living Color, among other projects, with his thoughts on Jeff Beck. Of the iconic guitarists of the Yardbirds, Jeff Beck embraced jazz. and He embraced experimentation. I don't want to say necessarily more than Jimmy Page, but certainly Clapton had a lane and he kept to his lane and Jeff Beck there was no lane to contain Jeff Beck his artistry there was no lane for him he was all the things and even I think a lot of fans were scratching their heads at his choices I mean the effect that John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra had on Jeff Beck was seismic he went on to play with the keyboard player of that band, Jan Hammer, and on several albums. And in fact, Jan Hammer's playing, because Jan Hammer played the mini Moog, and he, play, he developed a kind of guitar-like phrasing. And Jan Hammer's phrasing on the mini Moog, his phrasing on the analog monophonic mini Moog, affected Jeff Beck's phrasing. Like, you, you could hear in that time period, he was emulating somebody, emulating guitar, and making that language his own. And they're little things. I mean, you could hear, like, I've been recently just immersed in Jeff Beck and certain phrases, I hear, oh, that's like a Zappa. That's, that is like Zappa off apostrophe. And it'll just go right by with, with, with the quickness, but it's right there. A rhythmic grouping will be like that. So he was someone who was open to influences. And I think he was also very open to the emotions of tunes. So put it to you like this. Lester Young so moved Charles Mingus that he composed the song Goodbye Pork by Hat. And that song so moved Jeff Beck that Jeff Beck made one of the most soulful and beautiful interpretations of that song. Indian music, because I talk about the influence of John McLaughlin, I'm also including not just the Mahavishnu Orchestra, but also Shakti. And, also, and this also dovetails into, this dovetails into George Harrison 
and his taking lessons from Ravi Shankar. You know what I mean? So you, he, Jeff Beck absorbed this kind of approach, this kind of Carnatic Indian approach to bending strings. It was, the thing about Jeff Beck is that he, all, all kind of techniques were, were his to exploit. Slides, bends, shaking the guitar, hammer-ons, pull-offs. This is the thing that's so remarkable about Jeff Beck. Because the other thing, too, about Jeff is that you'll listen to him, and, of course, you may be waiting for the guitar solo, but he would play just an offhand thing off to the side. That's not even the main thing that will blow your mind. He had a mastery of the tremolo arm like nobody else. And he would play harmonica belt like a tone and then use the tremolo arm alone to play the rest of the melody. It's like staggering. Like you have to hear his version of Over the Rainbow. It's bonkers. So Jeff Beck was not just rough and rumble. He had a delicacy and a lyricism to his approach. And he's, he never stopped developing. He never stopped moving forward. He didn't get, people would say, he's the greatest, he's the greatest. But the thing is, he was not hung up on his greatness. He was not really particularly hung up on the guitar, even though that was his avocation. He loved it, obviously. But he would go work on his cars in his garage. And he was also a master restorer of antique cars. He could take an engine right. apart and put it back together by himself. You know what I mean? So he's that kind of mind. And, uh, and just hearing him on so many different, in so many different contexts, like, for example, he plays on a Malcolm McLaren record with Bootsy Collins when Malcolm McLaren was doing this, the waltz darling phase of Malcolm McLaren, right? He was doing this kind of Blue Danube, like sampling Blue Danube and making it funky. And Jeff Beck is all over that. I, don't, I can't think of a, uh, another rock musician of his status that's doing that, that would do, it was not part of his brand. It was like Malcolm McLaren is not the hard rock brand, but he's there because he digs it. He digs what it is, and that's why he does it. And that's the thing about Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck was undaunted by anyone's expectations. He was undaunted by genre. He was not intimidated by the word jazz. He just went to where the music was. He came by to see Living Color really early on, right? Yeah, when, when Mick Jagger came to, to see us at CBGBs, he brought Jeff Beck with him. Yeah, it was pretty, that was pretty wild. It's pretty wild. In fact, one of my condolences I sent out was to our bass player, Doug Wimbish, because Doug Wimbish um, played with Jeff Beck in the 80s and spent a lot of time with him. So it's, it's, very per, it's a very personal thing. I actually had an opportunity to sit in with Santana at the, we, he was playing at the, they were touring together in the late 80s, early 90s. They were touring together and they were doing a show at the Felt Forum. And I got to stand, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 feet away from Jeff Beck. You try to pick, watch somebody's hands to pick up some tips or whatever. And I'm watching, I'm literally 20 feet away, I'm watching Jeff Beck, and I could not correlate his hand positions. I couldn't correlate what his hands with the sounds that were coming out of the guitar. It was like complete, it was like, like sleight of hand. 
<laughs> it was like card tricks where the person doing the card tricks has shorts has a short sleeve shirt and he's and you're still your mind is utterly blown he's just mind-blowing in that way when he really plays with these textures and just bringing all of this pathos out of the instrument that's extraordinary to me okay anybody can play fast and do all that but he did this other thing which is so delicate and and not even pristine not per, not it's not like perfection he, was, he didn't care about perfection he cared about inhabiting the space the moment the emotion and that's the thing that's incredible i'm like listening to him just the introduction to people get ready with rod stewart Just forget about what he plays in the soul. Just a little bit of intro chords. It's, it's incredible. Because he's, he's Jeff Beck just playing those few chords. If you heard anybody, you would be like, wow. You know, any, he, he's, he's fully that dude before Rod Stewart even sings a note. What were the elements of his playing or what eras influenced you, especially when you were younger and getting your chops together? The fusion when he was playing, certainly when he was playing with Jan Hammer, the Wired era, and there and back, Lead Boots. Because he was playing you know, with Simon Phillips, he's playing with Narada Michael Wall, he's playing with Tony Smith, he's playing with all these incredible musicians. And so at that time, and he was also covering those tunes, like he, that was a big tune for. Billy Cobb, you know, he, he, so he, he brought the rock, it's like the jazz rock fusion thing. He was really from the rock side approaching the jazz part of it. So he was a huge influence in that way. He really was not unlike Tommy Bolin, who unfortunately left us far too soon. Tommy Bolin plays on Spectrum. And he's another rock player who is not, was not intimidated by jazz as a thing. He would, he just play what he heard and play with, play to the music as he felt it. And Jeff Beck just done that successfully for decades. But that period of, certainly that period, I was too young for the Yardbirds. My thing was the really from the constipated duck on blow by blow. From that point on, that was my entrance into Jeff Beck and his mastery. I think the thing yeah. about it, about Jeff, was that Jeff, did, doesn't ha didn't, Jeff didn't have to play fast to be in. That's, the, that's another thing about it. He didn't necessarily have to blitz you with notes to blow you down. That's not how he, that's not how he got you. He got you with that texture, the tone, the way, his dynamics. There was nobody. I mean, if I think about guitarists that use dynamics Steve Howe John Ackerman for, with focus that used kind of swells and used to use the volume to to swell things up the other thing too his command of the whammy bar was epic was yeah. epic his legacy his approach it definitely has had a tremendous impact on players I hear him very I hear him very strongly in, in Joe Satriani very much so I, I hear his, I hear him and Tom Morello, in, in, not in the sense of Tom Morello playing solos, but Tom Morello, the way he utilizes the guitar and is able to get those kind of rhythm sounds and get tremolo from the pickup selector and all that, a lot of that is him trying to Im imitate a turntable, but certainly part of what Tom Morello does is a legacy from Jeff Beck.
his approach to how to make the guitar do things that it ain't supposed to do. If anything, the influence on me is to do my own thing. Like I, I could look at something like on Stain, my approach to the solo for Ignorance is Bliss, right? It, I'm not, I don't sound like Jeff Beck, but the way I use a 16 second delay and do this whole crazy thing with it, or the way I played the solo on Never Satisfied on that album. That kind of experimentation, I was influenced certainly by Agent Blue, Jeff Beck, a bunch of different people. But most of what it is like me trying to be a weirdo on my own. And for our final tribute, before you hear from Jeff Beck himself, here is... What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Joe Satriani. I know that Jeff Beck was important to you. As oh, an yeah. I, when I started playing, there was a group of players like Jeff and Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, Martin Barr, all those players, George Harrison, really. And of course, uh, standout would be Hendrix. And they were my introduction to real electric guitar playing. I didn't know about Buddy Guy or B.B. King, Albert King, all those guys that influenced that group of players that I started to get in, introduced to. It, it was really fascinating for me to build a style as a young guitar player on these, I guess, second-generation electric blues players, and then after a while discovering, oh, this is who their foundations were, and then go back and then look at the buddy guy and say, okay, now who is he influenced by, and then go back again. But Jeff had this thing, you know, he, he, uh, I always thought he had this, whether he meant it or not, he had this irreverent attitude every time he paid homage to these blues players. And it just came out as Jeff Beck being very much Jeff Beck, no matter who he played with, he just took over and redesigned the thing. Whereas Eric Clapton was super respectful. He, he Eric would show you, these are my roots, I've studied, I've, I've created this cultured style based around these people, and I'm showing you. And Paige was a little crazier, Hendrix took it to another level, but Jeff just somehow twisted it, almost like he was saying, yeah, yeah, I've listened to all these guys and they're great, but watch what I'm doing with it. So when I was a young player and I started playing along with the first couple of records that he did, I just thought, wow, listen to that vibrato. Listen so to that have been Yardbird stuff or would it have been like Truth and Beckola? Yeah, it would have started with Truth. Yeah. I was too young for the Yardbirds. Those records showed up first and I didn't purchase them. My older sibling suddenly brought Truth into the house and everything else. And then I started playing in a high school band with these guys who were about a year or two years older than me. I was 14 at the time. They really introduced me to all these other players and Jeff Beck specifically and that's the first time I heard going down yeah, 
that was the definitive version. I figured what could get better than that? And especially the way Jeff would dart in and out. What a strange way to play a blues song. What a great way not to copy every other blues player who'd done it. I just thought that was really brilliant. And it was so different. But over the decades, thing is, Beck just got better and better. I don't want to say he refined what he did. I think he just like added like so much stuff to what he could do on the guitar. Technically speaking, what he did with the Stratocaster was really interesting. Uh, Hendrix definitely sort of re reinvented what you could possibly do with the Stratocaster. And Beck was right there with him. We lost Jimmy too soon. But Beck was there, and that they both shared that love of that instrument and trying to twist the hell out of it and create some new sounds out of it. The fact that Beck just really focused in on picking with his fingers, using uh, the guitar in the arrangements in a sort of a quasi-melodic meets riff meets rhythm way, accompanying the singer, it was a very interesting thing. Since Jimmy sang himself, it was a slightly different approach, but you could see where they were coming from the same place in what they were trying to do with the Strat and how they were creating rock music with it. But they grew up in totally different circumstances. Jeff had this total British attitude towards it, and it just got better and bigger. He didn't distill it down to one thing. He just kept adding to it. And when I think about Guitar Shop, I think that's a perfect example of a record that blew people away. The same way that the Blow by Blow or Wire did. It just, you know, one after the other, he would expand his horizons by playing with new people, writing new material, and he'd always bring out some technical thing using Linux and, and the way that he would represent his personality with these things not copying a trend but by by somehow bringing out more of himself with this technique that, that's a subtlety i mean it's a crazy thing and like everyone like when the wawa was big everyone could go out and get a wawa right and but only certain people made it their own like the talk box only a couple of people like peter frampton just sort of like you know <laughs> made it his own but I think that Jeff had a way of getting a hold of these things and making them his own in such a big way. It just, he was always bigger than the technique. Big thing that's unspoken is he was a guitar player who had a career eventually under his own name, which extended to hit instrumental albums and a career where he didn't need a singer. And obviously <laughs> that certainly helped pave the way for a career like yours, I would say. Absolutely. I started out, I think, really thinking about guitar instrumentals with uh, Third Stone from the Sun. And that was the most cathartic thing when I was a young teenager to get through. Listen, actually, even before I was a teenager, just being able to listen to that song all the way through used to just make my heart race and break out in sweats. <laughs> I don't know why. It just was mm. so intense for me. It was so cathartic to listen to that. And it never left. And as I got older, I understood that it was just I was moved by this music, you know. And I always loved instrumental music. And 
I think when I started to hear the Jeff Beck stuff introduced by my high school bandmates, I was fascinated by it because I really felt what interested me most is this melodic thing. I love playing crazy guitar and making noises and love the showbiz attitude about rock and roll. If it's not melodic, I somehow check out. If it's just a display of technique, I'm not there. And he had that. Hendrix had that. They had a way of just being really beautifully melodic. And, but he also had that crazy attitude. You knew he was a dangerous rock and roll guitar player. He always made that with every, you know, obvious with every song that he did. I kept that with me. In the middle 80s, when I was feeling like I might do something else in my life and I just wanted to start making some fun recordings for the home, I was leaning on that idea that these guys, especially Jeff, had made a great career out of doing what he wanted to do and not trying to join any trend. He searched out musicians who were on the cutting edge of what he thought was great new music, and he tried to incorporate that into what he wanted to do with how, how he saw the electric guitar and how it would fit in to this new idea of combining rock and blues and jazz. And at the time, it was fusion, I guess, that was coming up in the 70s. He never lost himself in it. No matter who he played with, he retained that Jeff Beck attitude. And I love that. And I, I remember thinking about that. And when I started to really go from my little EP to then having drums and bass and keyboards, I just kept reminding myself of how outside Jimi Hendrix was and and how forceful Jeff was in retaining his personality. It was like a reminder, you don't have to water your stuff down. As a matter of fact, you got to go the other way. Look at what Jeff did. He just became more Jeff with every record. And that's why when every, every time he released a record, people would go, oh my God, what the fuck is that? It's like, what's he doing now? It's so much fun. Did you learn the fusion stuff as well? Blow by blow, wire, did yeah. that stuff you put, yeah? Oh man, we, when that came out, remember I was in a disco band where I was just finishing playing with a disco band for about a year. <laughs> and the rhythm section, we were all rockers just looking for money. I mean, we, just, we needed a gig that paid every week. So that's why we were in this band. But our hearts were in rock and roll, and when that record came out, we would just always be jamming on that stuff, especially like Freeway Jam or something. We just thought it was so amazing. And George Martin coming together with Jeff, that was really something. And same thing with Wire, that was just a wow, you know. When Narda Michael Walden came into the picture, that was another huge jump for Jeff. And working with Jan Hammer, of course, that was also fantastic. Jan is just one of those supreme musicians. Hard to find a musician as talented and forceful and totally inspiring as him. But um, boy, Jeff stood up to that as well and used that as something to invigorate his musical world and also introducing that sort of approach to his fans, I think was, it was monumental. Not only the musicians like myself who loved him, but just the fans who just thought, wow, lead boots, wow. That's the, a very interesting new chapter in rock music. It, it was less fusion-y than Mahavishnu Orchestra, but it carried just as much weight. No pun intended. <laughs> lead boots and all. I was talking with Vernon Reed about the his sort of modern era, the 2000s, and 
it seems like he he did a lot of things, but one of the things he was very interested in was just carrying the melody of a song in a really interesting way in his versions of the Beatles' Day in the Life and things like that, where he would he'd play the whole thing with harmonics or just whammy bar stuff and like just really just finding more and more interesting ways to just convey a melody, which is a whole different way of approaching lead guitar, obviously. Yeah, there's a thing about the guitar, I think when you do, when you, when you approach an instrumental and you're going to play it in a slightly non-conventional way, you run the risk of it being an, sounding like a novelty. It's a difficult thing. It's two-hand tapping. One of the things that Eddie Van Halen did so well was he made sure that there was some really good music backing up this showboating technique. Self wasn't that difficult to do, but you would instantly expose yourself as a poser. Well, easy for you to say, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) You really do sound like a poser if there's no music you're playing. It's like within three seconds you go, oh, those are just arpeggios. It's not eruption. It's not a well-thought-out, fun, interesting piece of music. And uh, so that, that got everybody thinking about that. And I think the harmonic thing is also something that obviously has been around for a couple of centuries of, of stringed instruments. But what he decided to do with it and the electric guitar was really difficult, crazy, super brave, but so, so musical. I think to me, the song Where Were You is probably one of the most outstanding instrumental uh, pieces on guitar ever recorded. seen him play it live and it's really breathtaking he never did it the same twice but he hit that beautiful mark every time it was just such a a tour de force of putting together an almost impossible technique and pulling it off i'm sure you've seen that that the clip of him doing it at ronnie scott's and um it's really great it's so personal up close you really get the feeling like okay he's here's a guitar player who's taking the biggest risk ever because this this can't be done in tune, really. <laughs> and not every harmonic is going to come out the way it did on the album when they, had, when they could do it over and over again. But there he is, putting all of his heart and soul into it with a little bit of a, a smile here and there. And you can see how difficult it is and how it's just, his hands are just like, they're just like treasures. I mean, it's amazing. It's like, the guitar loves his hands, and they're saying, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll play along with this. <laughs> we'll see if we can get you to do this idea. And, but it's what he plays with it. When he hits those high notes, it just takes your breath away, and you forget about the technique all of a sudden. Until somebody says to you, hey, do you know how to play that? And you go, <laughs> yeah, but no. <laughs> I've got it memorized, and, and I can play all the notes, but man, does it not sound like Jeff doing it. He just had a way of putting all of himself into it that transformed the, the technique and made it that beautiful piece of music that it is. My experience, knowing a lot of young people who were trying to play guitar, was that Page and Clapton had plenty of licks and songs that seemed sort of approachable that you could start to learn, whereas Beck a lot of times just seemed, forget that until 10 years from now. It just, <laughs> he didn't have a lot of beginner-friendly stuff, at least in, in the... Uh, as far as in my experience at least yeah yeah and it's true because you didn't you didn't really hear like bar chords you didn't hear a complete scale which is really common today when people 
go to play something impressive, they very often will play the entire scale everywhere. And he never did that. And, and he, he, on a technical way, I can say you rarely heard him play these big open chords from, for eight measures while somebody did something else. He always played little fragments. He always darted in and out and played little embellishments to what else was going on. I think what made his shows so interesting live was how much he didn't play. And I remember about 10 years ago, Chickenfoot was recording an album and Jeff was playing across town in Oakland. We all went down there so excited to see Jeff and the guys play. And, and Vinny and Tal were in the band at the time. And I was mesmerized. And it was one of those moments where you've been busy in the studio playing. And we did a lot of live recording with Chickenfoot. As a guitar player, you're always thinking, how much should I play? When do I go from rhythm to solo to embellishment while Sammy's singing? So it was fresh on my mind. And then suddenly I'm in this theater and I'm watching Jeff play and I'm marveling at how much he's not playing. He is allowing so much room, not just sonically for the other three band members to play, but also rhythmically. And so he's really just listening very carefully to what other folks are doing and making sure he's not stepping on it. So he's never, you know, strum, 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 chunk, 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 chunk. He does there's none of that. He's actually just enjoying being one of four. And, but then every time he goes to do something, it's Mount Everest. It's the one note that he hits or the five. It's just huge because of his timing. We had this fantastic sense of timing. He had good time, first of all, great time, but he also had a great sense of timing, when to play, when not to play, how to be part of the group, what was happening, part of that magic. And I'm really happy we have this for you. I want to take you back to 2018, when our own Corey Groh sat down with Jeff Beck for a really great conversation that touches on a lot of the highlights of his career. The documentary, the Jeff Beck story, still on the run, had just come out and that kind of spurred a lot of the discussion. Here is Corey Groh and Jeff Beck. How does it feel for you to sit there and listen to Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton and Eric Gilmore? I must admit that there was a tear, especially with Eric. Yeah. I never expected him to even bother to be in it, but I studied his face over and over. <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when they sent me some of the rushes, I just went over that just to make sure that <laughs> it was just overwhelming, really. I just, I wanted to ring him up and just say, you can't have that. I'll leave it like that. People are going to be sick. I think Eric said in the film something that you'd given him a lot of wake-up calls, like listening to you play. That's got to feel good. Oh, more than the one. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how Eric's character was emblazoned in my brain as being a real bother boy, like a force to be reckoned with, moody, punchy maybe. And I never met him until I'd been in the archives and the act had been committed. We'd already upset him immensely by being in America before he had a chance to go. And then as the film shows that we recorded in Chess and Sun Records, just the two goals that most rock and roll guitarists would go for, look for. So I proudly go back there and he's playing in a club with eight people. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, at least you're committed to your craft <laughs> with John Mayer. It was great. It was just a great career for music. But, uh, 
And then lo and behold, he comes out with cream and just swipes us all around the head. Obviously, you toured with him, and it's just funny listening to the interviews with him before. It sounds like there was a professional competition, at least from his side. Did you ever feel a professional competition? He did say to me, he, why he invited me to the last to this gig, which was the penultimate, the ultimate penultimate gig of his UK tour. He always finishes off in the local town hall at Guildford where he lives near and I thought why is he asking me and I thought obviously he won't be playing so go along and have a beer on the way there he goes do you want to play Blackie and I said I don't know that song he said no it's my guitar so I went oh whoops first calamity of the, of the evening <laughs> and then he said no play I said of course I did bring a guitar so yeah I'll, I'll do that and then about a minute later he turned around and still in the car and he goes you're not going to it's not going to be one of these blowing off things, is it? I said, listen, either we, I play or I don't. And there was that definitely some, what's the word, uncomfortable rivalry about it. Tension. And I found out later from Patty, his wife, that there was definitely, especially with the Stevie Wonder stuff, he was too amused about me doing something successful with Stevie. I think that maybe it got under his skin a bit. If I was Eric, I'd be pretty pissed off that's there was any association. But did you ever feel that way towards him? It seemed like no. you just went about your own life. No, I just thought, he's got the blues covered. You know, yeah. And he's also got very good pop song. And I don't have either, really. Don't have, I'm not committed to putting myself up for a blues guitarist, even though I love playing the blues. That wouldn't do it for me. I have to have another avenue. I've been forging, trying to forge that avenue. And bumping into things, sure. And... and but I'm still here. And after, as long as people have got the willingness to follow through thick and thin, then I'm prepared to get on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> Risk my life. I know you love the blues, but at the same time, when I read interviews with you, most of the names you mention are like early rock and rollers and Django Reinhardt and people like that. It seemed like a different... Because they were the first, that was the first nuclear explosion musically. Must have grabbed Jimmy the same way, I think. Mm -hmm. I believe that James Burton was more important than Earl, Earl Hooker, for example, in the first instance. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe. <clears throat> but uh, it was only during the meetings with Jim at his house <clears throat> in our teenage years that we really got into who was playing what. That was the, we were like news reporters going to one another's house. I've just heard that Buddy Holly didn't play, but that'll be the day. Like, what? <laughs> he didn't. It was somebody else. You know, this shocking stuff that we were digging up. Mm -hmm. uh, Grady Martin was playing the guitar and not Paul Burleson. You know. This was cheating. This was shocking stuff for somebody who was so incredibly committed to that, to those players and so yeah. believing of them. And when I get on a bus with my guitar shaped like the case shaped like a guitar, the inevitable bus conductor phrase was, go on Elvis, give us a tune. I mean, Elvis doesn't play the what I play. I have to give him a short lesson. And then you realize the hopelessness, that's what the images of, that people have. He was synonymous with the guitar, even though your man, Scotty, was not unheard of until reasonably recently. You asked this person when Elvis Presley had Hound Dog out, who was playing the guitar, I said, Elvis. They would have said Elvis, no doubt. And that's why I was so intrigued with the whole thing. I thought, why are these people making this incredible, crucial contribution to these records not mentioned? Did that make you want to be more of a guitar player and less of a singer? Like, I know you didn't do much singing. Oh, no, I but... never had any desire to sing. Yeah. No, I, ooh, I think that was probably through early childhood and 
being bludgeoned by girls, my sister's friends. Yeah. They knock it right out of you. Forget, forget about it. When you're 12 and they're 16, you don't stand a dog's chance. You just mentioned listening to all this stuff with Jimmy. What was Jimmy like when you first met him? I know you were both teenagers. If you can look at that film, freeze frame the picture with him, tiny little face and short hair, that's him. But it, funnily enough, later, maybe a few years later, if I knock at the door and there's a different person standing there with six foot long hair, that's how the fashion changed. He was excited, I think, likewise, that we were two people on a quest to try to find out how things were done. And just generally enjoying the thing with 100% attention to detail. In the film, they talk about how your mother pushed you towards piano. I know you didn't want to do that. What did she make of your rock career when you went into... I probably blotted out how it really was because I just don't care to recall any upheavals in the family, Mm -hmm. which there were plenty of. But they somehow didn't prevent me from doing it. They complained but didn't prevent me. And uh, I suppose they thought, if he's got a guitar, he's not going out stealing or anything like that. That could have easily been, because the only friends I had were (laughs) pretty low life. They were one step away from jail, most of them. Wow. Uh, A small group, say two or three out of maybe five, would be on the path to no good. And the guitar saved me from that. I was reading an old interview with you from the 70s where you talked about when you joined the Yardbirds. You, you talk about how they told you you couldn't use echo in the blues. I vaguely remember Keith being a purist. And I thought, you can be a purist and you can be poor. <laughs> I'm going to do what I think I was on the path of doing before they asked me to join. Which was completely avant-garde, experimental. A bit like Eric Dolphy, you know, uh, yeah. Roland Kirk. I don't want to put myself on that musical level, but... The actual mechanics of what I was doing, playing to to tape, repeat, and then feeding back and making all the weirdest noises I could make within one song. And that's when Eric came down and saw me and he realized that's where the job was going. <laughs> that's funny. In the film, you talked about the idea of coming up with that sitar line that's, that you emulated the heart full of soul. Yeah. Was that something you'd been doing before? Was that like, because I know you used to... Um, to... Yeah, but there was something locked in my head that... Ravi Shankar put there. He was playing scales on one one thin wire. The rest are drone strings. And right. He was just doing the speediest scales with a piece of wire pick like mm-hmm. this, whatever. It's like a kind of triangular thing that you put on your, your finger pick. Right? Yeah. And the span of these, bolt, these tied-on frets was so cumbersome. And I was so impressed with the speed and intonation and micro-tuning and all that, and I thought, this can be used. This is definitely another sound that people won't have heard, applied to a pop record. Yeah. Or any other record other than the classic Indian stuff. And it sounded weird enough to be intriguing to me. So I was already on that, that path. Otherwise, I couldn't have just pulled that riff off in the middle of the session. Yeah, I was going to say, that's something that you need to do, like with Nadia and stuff like that, the yeah. microtones and yeah. stuff. Um, exactly. This the same thing that happened in that. You know, certain songs throughout my life have been stop the car. Only about four or five, but 
Yeah, it's a pullover, stop it. Oh, not to miss it. There's been several songs like Nadia where you emulate the voice on your guitar. Because we ended as lovers would be another one. Was that always just something that just came natural? Or that seems like a difficult thing. Just enjoying transforming the voice into a guitar. It was something mm -hmm. to play that that had some kind of with a melodic sensibility. And it carried just as well as an instrumental one, or well as an instrumental as it did as a song. Mm -hmm. Although you can't obviously have the lyric, but if the melody is powerful, then it's playable. And yeah. People, they don't have to hear the lyrics. The sound is supplement to that. Yeah, that's definitely true of those. Going back to the Yardbirds for a second, something, they mentioned the blow up in the documentary, but they didn't mention the fact that you had to smash your guitar like Pete Townsend. And I was wondering how you feel about that all these years later. And Clearly, they, the Who were asked to do it, and they, did, yeah. they said no. And I'm, this is my, my own opinion of it. Maybe they didn't go to the Who, but it was exactly at the time when Pete was smashing the Riverbacks. Yeah. And I wasn't in a position to argue when they paid us such a lot of money. It was a proper professional film with a top Italian producer, director, and he just said, you'll smash your guitar. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> it was a, um, a sunburst Les Paul, and I thought this. He said, we'll buy you, we'll buy you another one. He didn't grasp that you don't do that <laughs> to those guitars. So they rented six really bad, not bad, but beginner guitars. Yeah. And they were so, so cheap, they came in a clear plastic bag. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I remember there wasn't much left of any of them when we finished. Yeah. Because I thought, okay, if you want me to be Pete Townsend, I'll do it. Uh -huh. Who's going to argue when the money was there? I knew that I'd get some stick from Pete, but I never did. No? But the thing was, I used to smash amps up anyway, out of rage rather than the genuine showbiz side of it. I used to knock, they crackle, they were finished. <laughs> They would end up on the floor. It talks about in the film about a, when you left during the caravan of stars, you left the Yardbirds. Have, yeah. you, have you ever regretted that? And where did you think no. you... <laughs> no, it was the best thing I did at, at great cost. Because I, I, I hadn't realized that by leaving that, that band, I had to go east or west. Do I go home, east, or do I go back to the girl? Big mistake going back to the girl. Oh, yeah? Big mistake. It really opened up who she really was. Do you know what I mean? There was a sort of lukewarm reception. Mm -hmm. I got back to Los Angeles and thought, okay, I'm, I'm now, I'm now, what's the word, cramping her style, <laughs> which he knew I was coming to town. That was fine, but uh, I thought, okay. And then my visa ran out, so I had to go home. Going home was probably the worst because I had nothing. Given my guitar to Jim, I had no money, and I was living back with mum with no money, and I thought, wow. And yet I had no desire to ring up and say, do you think I could come back? I feel better now. I wouldn't have had the balls to do that. Even if they'd asked me, I probably wouldn't have. They went off to Australia. And I think by what I heard, they disappointed a, few, a lot of people that I wasn't in the band. Yeah. They didn't know about Jim. They just knew about me. Anyway, that was what it was. And But when you get kicked so hard, you realise that there's a serious wake-up call when you get up and do something. And that's what drove me to do it. Had I not had that and drifted a bit, it would have been a lot worse. But this big smack around the head, being it back at home with nothing, I thought, mm -hmm. okay, need to get cracking now. You need to get a new guitar and meet some new people. However I did that, I just became, yeah. I could have easily just never played again. Yeah. And I thought, just got out of a panel shop. You've been to America. Why did they take this stupid step of going on a Dick Clark package tour? Yeah. I didn't really 
know how bad it was going to be until we were doing six, seven hundred miles of this bus for doing 15 minutes. Yeah, and that's brutal. I just thought we've got more in us than that. Yeah, wouldn't be wouldn't it be better to put us in a package with or on a concert or a festival where we can get discovered in in the festival? But there weren't too many. In fact, we were breaking new ground in a big way with bubble gum, bubble gum everywhere you look. Yeah, and um, we were just pre the underground. The underground stuff was just happening, and wow. that's when I luckily came back with Rod. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that. Something that he said in the film that I thought was interesting is that you worked to arrange the songs on Truth to be like more interesting than the twelve bar blues. Do you remember what your vision was? How you? If yeah, you... I was interested. In, I loved Motown and I loved the musicality, of course, the sound. And the one thing that was coming constantly from the press was criticism about the production line sound. And I thought, okay, when you get an amazing sound, it's only an idiot that would change that. And I became on the defensive for the Motown acts. All right, it was a production line, but it was a great production line, yeah. great songs. There was a nuances on every record. There was a different sound to maybe, or a different mix from artist to artist, but that inimitable sound of the drums and James Jameson, and that, you know, I just couldn't ignore it. And I was trying to apply a little piece of the James Jameson funk, that lovely fat back sound that I had with drums to the group with Mickey Waller. We had a little Motown feel going on. Yeah. But it was a more hard edge. As if you could put the Motown players and get them slightly, you know, mm-hmm. out of control. That's what I was after. A heavy blues influence, but with maybe a, a few more twists in the chord changes. Maybe. What was it about the band, though, that you ultimately decided that it couldn't go on for Woodstock? Like you, you mentioned you said you couldn't compete against Sly Stone. Why, why was that? Why did you feel you guys weren't there? Well, because but... we hadn't played in front of large audiences. We'd mm. done the film. Yeah. But that was gone in a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, we ended up, I think, bookended the, the tour with Film West, which was just a joyous thing, except for the pot that everybody was stoned and never the smoke in the air or just making stone. But uh, somewhere along the line, I think the second tour that came along was when, in 69, when the offer to play Woodstock. I just thought, you know, and there, there was a bad vibe in the, in the band. There, there was a sort of Ronnie, the Ronnie Wood, Wood and Rod, and that's it. And I wasn't anywhere in the picture. Mm. They would go off and I'd be stuck. Doesn't come right. Like, there was no camaraderie. It, it fizzled for some reason. It, I never found out the true story, but we won't go into any um, of the possibilities. <laughs> but I just thought, no, when they said there's going to be about 100,000 people, then it went to 200. Mm-hmm. I just blanked off and I thought, I don't want to do this. If they're filming it, it's too nerve wracking. Let's at least get to the point where we have a hit. I hadn't found my feet, really. I yeah. think the, the band was great, and we would, it was mercurial in, in terms of the set, because by the time we finished, people were going crazy, Yeah. as opposed to the, the beginning when they were going, uh, who's this funny-looking guy with women's blouses up? <laughs> <laughs> when did you feel like you found your feet? Like, at what point in your life? I'm still looking, mate. I, don't yeah. <laughs> I suppose with George Martin, have the stamp of approval from someone like him. Yeah. Went a long way. Earlier you mentioned uh, Stevie Wonder. I'm always curious, just what was that like working with him? I'd already been to Motown in 1970 with Cozy, which was the most ridiculous waste of time, but <laughs> an education that you wouldn't, I wouldn't want to miss. Yeah. Sitting there for 10 days watching J. 
James Jameson and the players. So when Stevie agreed to do this, it was an idea that came up from Epic Records, I think. I said I really love Stevie and the, the music of my mind album was a completely a milestone. It was a, as revolutionary as any any musical album could be. Yeah. With all synthesizers, the songs were great. I was mesmerised by them. And then the next thing I know, I'm doing the follow-up album. Thank you. I wouldn't have cared if nothing had happened, just to sit there and watch him work and get to know how it's done. It was like a little tiny piece of Motown, but a massive piece of Motown. Yeah. That he obviously learned his craft the way they do it, a tiny little studio. And the same thing seemed to be happening in, in the, the um, Electric Lady, where we did this. Wow. The time just ripped by, I think it was three or four days. And uh, man, it's incredible. He could sit there and map out a song on a keyboard. It would be first chorus perfect. Then go and put the drums or whatever, the bass part. I remember Max, who's a great player. You just never, you could never believe how someone could pull a song out of the middle, middle mm-hmm. of the air. Superstition. You have a memory of that, that version, the Stevie version? The way it was put together was so fast. For me playing drums first, then he took over and dubbed onto the clavinet track that he was playing to my drum. And then from that point, I just sat there, my jaw open, watching yeah. the bass line. And, and then the lyrics came out. There were Some of them were throwaway lyrics, and then he nailed the lyrics. Yeah. But by the end of the day, it was complete. Wow. Except for horns. I don't think the horns were on it. Moving on to kind of like blow by blow, what was it that did, you mentioned kind of John McLaughlin and uh, Miles Davis in the documentary, but what did push you into wanting to concentrate mostly on, on instrumental music? Just knowing that John had done that with the Marvision Orchestra was a, a clear lesson that you could, there is life after a singer. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a high arts and very incredibly involved musically. But there is room to, to use some of that influence. After all, it's just notes. Yeah. If I can make a, a maybe even a simplified version of that, because there's no Billy Common where I live. You know, I don't know about you, but <laughs> you'd need that. You need somebody who could play like that. The emphasis was on great playing rather than sensational pop records being pushed by record companies. This was more important to me to be part of that. That in, what's the word? Backroom inventiveness that was going on musically. I think it's somebody in the doc described you as a rock player who understood jazz or something like that. I don't know whether he got that right or not. He said, I'm one of the only rock players that also understands jazz. Yeah. I'm very pleased with that, but I don't understand jazz. No. <laughs> if you ever seen that clip of Chris Guest mm-hmm. and Spinal Tap talking about jazz, where he goes, why are they playing so quietly? <laughs> what are they afraid of? <laughs> I just thought, this is so funny. Yeah. Of course, it's, I understand I understand what I'm hearing. Yeah. Whether or not it, it has any validity. There's uh, I mean, Miles, of course, and some of the great drummers, Elvin Jones, Buddy Rick. But the great thing about rock and roll is simplification. It's between the, the eyes. That's what Hound Dog was. That's what Rock Around the Clock was. And don't tell me that it doesn't make you jump up and down when you hear it. Something that was interesting in the doc is it talks about how, obviously you didn't do a whole lot of records in the 80s. I know you did a lot of sessions and stuff like that. You did a couple records. But you, you, in other interviews, I've said where you felt like the 80s and the 90s were just not the best for you. And I was just wondering why that was and what was going on artistically. Because I've listened to everything that 
came across, I, I didn't go out buying records or had other things to do. But I noticed people like Michael Jackson and I thought, well, that's not for me. It's fabulous, but it's not for me. Yeah. What is selling? And then there was the whole 80s rock and roll metal circus from, you know, the Quiet Riot, that kind of thing. Yeah. Big hair. Twisted sister. Groupies, all with the same hair. I just, yeah. uh, thank God, I never went in there. So the doors were closing in the possibility of me playing a sizable concert, because that's what was selling. So I just kept out of it. And it does you good to not be around, it does. You're refreshed. And as long as you, like, I've been lucky, I had a place where I could be away from everything for as long or as short a time as I needed. That's vitally important, to be able to be away in total quiet and doing something other way, completely dis disassociated with showbiz. But at the same time, you were playing on big records by Tina Turner and Mick Jagger. Well, who's going to say no when I got a call? <laughs> I'd be proud that someone remembered I was even alive. You know? <laughs> do you remember? Yeah. Do you have memories of working with Tina and Mitch? Yeah. Or were those were they unbelievable? Easy? The guy producing wouldn't play more than just about one dB. Yeah, and I just wasn't used to that. And this track was kick-ass, steel claw, was yeah. very up tempo, and the private dancer, and it was just like listening to a portable radio. And I thought. How can I tell the producer how to produce a record? He obviously knows what he's doing. So I had to do this solo, like a sort of stadium yeah. style with a transistor radio <laughs> volume. And Tina came in. She said, how's it going? And I went, okay. She said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do a guide vocal so you can get the fire. And I went, oh, great. And I just sat there in one take. <laughs> That's what it was. I don't think she did another take. Wow. And she went, I'll leave you to it. And she came back three or four hours later and I was still struggling, trying to get the sound. And uh, it all ended up really well because she liked what I did and took me out to dinner. <laughs> Before we move on from the 80s, something I wanted to ask about was that also was the time that all the big guitar people that kind of doing similar things like Satriani and Vi and all these people came about. What did you make of all that at the time? I was glad. Yeah. And on the one hand, that guitar was still king. They were flying a great flag, you know, the big flag for the guitar. At least it wasn't a bunch of synthesizers <laughs> and the guitar was getting nudged out of the picture. No, I had every, every respect for them. Vi and uh, Eddie Van Halen, great. Uh, let them have that. As long as it doesn't encroach in my style, you know, it didn't. I was happy. Great. But of course, they being younger, I've got to get the young audience. Um, it actually was a little bit awkward because they come along and start creaming off a big man. <laughs> and we're still, you know, people like me, Jim and Eric. Eric, obviously, he's got the big hits. It just it was another challenge, you know, how the hell do you keep going when that's happening in stadiums and stuff? Have you heard, I'm sure you've read this, but it seems like lately guitar in general, just guitar playing seems to be going down. You hear about Guitar Center having all these problems and Gibson well, and things like that. Things are changing. People's buying habits are different. Raves, the raps and all that. But that's where it's all going from. Yeah. The shuffle dance and the trance clubs and all that. There's 10,000 people in there with just a massive speakers and one guy with a set of headphones. Yeah. <laughs> it's inevitable that it'll be over, if not now, not, not long ahead. Yeah. And I'm uh, just clinging on for grim death. <laughs> <laughs>
mentioned like electronic music was a big inspiration for you for a while. Yeah. Like, with the, like you had it coming. It was like one of my favorite records from you. Well, it needed somebody to produce it that understood where, how it was going to be best placed and not just swept aside in a record company warehouse somewhere. Although the people that I played it, that, that material to enjoyed it, it just wasn't picked up sufficiently. So I didn't do another one. I did those two albums were done with just a guitar and uh, techno stuff. And then I realized I really need to butt the drama. The, there's no escaping from the camaraderie in a three piece band, four pieces, and going out and playing. If you make yourself a, a trench, you're going to fall in it. And that would be your techno stuff. You know, it would be me going on the road with, with a guy pressing buttons, and I didn't really fancy that. Yeah. I think I saw you on the You Had a Coming Tour, and you still had a band with you. The, you did those songs live. Yeah. It was okay. I think people saw through it. The hardcore guitar followers don't want to hear that. <laughs> that's who my audience is. Yeah. Was. And it never got above that. I had mm -hmm. a, we had a hit with something. It would have been different, but I'd sense that you don't go too far up that road anymore. Yeah. I think they'd rather see real playing with real players. I think that's the best thing to do, is, as long as you've got people like Vinny. Yeah. And my band members are the, the best I can lay hands on. I think they're the best in the world. Yeah. Uh, there's, as long as people are prepared to come, so be it. It's real. And, uh, you know, we all use effects, let's face it, and verb and maybe the old chorus delays and that, but nothing that radical. There's no whole great tr backing tracks or anything like that where you double track with the vocals and like the big guys do, the big girls. I can tell right away when they're, they're not playing live. Yeah. The massive giveaway is there's no plug going in the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Just looking back on everything, do you... What area, what time, I guess, of your music? Because you've gone through all these different styles. What are you happiest with, like, when you look back on all your albums? Oh, God, it's just impossible. Yeah. Um, the moments you cherish are when you've got the audience where you want it, where they mm. are happiest. And going back and hearing a roar, that's at the moment. And just listening to a great groove and getting feeling it. Yeah. If the sound on the stage is some places we play, I've got that wooden stage. And the minute you walk on, the place is alive. And you yeah. Know, you can feel the bass drum without it being too loud. Hear the snap of the snare. It, that's why we do what we do, I think. You know? Yeah. Those are the moments. And when you start a song that people know, yeah. and they go, you know, there's response. Yeah. So it's good. Where, where, would you have a least favorite era from your career? The 80s were okay with Simon Phillips. They were with Doug Wimbish when we played that Japanese thing. That was electrifying. There were about 150,000 Japanese people going nuts. But then we come back home and that, that was gone. It's hard to keep the continuity, the flow yeah. going. Because the thing is, unless you've got umpteen thousand million dollars of backing, it's hard, hard to keep a band together. They need paying on a retainer. And... If you have three years on retainer, then wipe out everything you've got <laughs> while you're waiting to do the next move. And unfortunately, I didn't have that. I had to keep the thing well coordinated so that I didn't run out of money.
I've always just been curious. I know you've mentioned this a little bit once before, but like, when did the tremolo bar, like, when did you have the revelation of everything you could do there? Because when I watch your, your right hand, everything you do with the volume and the tremolo bar. Well, it's a little bit, I suppose, right off the top of my head, it's probably a bit of frustration with the pedal steel player and the incredible players like Buddy Evans and the National Bar Association, did, where they play with pedals and knee levers and a big steel bar. Mm-hmm. there's so much going on for the brain and I just thought this is a tiny little piece of that the, mm-hmm. the whammy bar if you tune the guitar a certain way you can change chords by bending the, a string within a chord and also depressing and raising the bar so you've got a mini pedal steel and albeit but tiny it does stuff that's impressive and I realised that if you have the thing set up 50-50 up and down you can raise or lower the pitch do you remember when you really went oh, into that? Way back. Way back. Yeah, yeah. I was at school. I just wondered what that, that arm was for. Yeah. I had no idea. And when I first picked up the guitar arm, I was twiddling it round and round mm-hmm. instead of up and down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> In the doc, Jennifer Batten called you an unsung hero to the masses. And I was sort of curious what you made of that and if you're comfortable with your level of fame, I guess. All, all I can say is that I've never made the big time and never mercifully, probably. But I think that when you look around and see who has made it huge, it's a really rotten place to be when you think that. Yeah. Maybe I'm blessed with not having had that. I have to look at it that way, and I'm quite happy to do it. Because we've got a tour coming up. We're playing to bigger places, apparently. Yeah. Bigger audiences. It's another year, so who knows? Yeah. You seem to have sidestepped all the trappings that come with fame, too. You never, I don't hear any stories about alcoholism or drug use. There's never anything. No, like I that keep that under wraps. <laughs> <laughs> I understand how easily one could go down that road. Yeah. People don't understand that performing is, if you have that mind, some people love to get out there and show off and they, they, they could do it, they drop of a hat. Some don't. And I'm one of those people that could never even imagine. Walking on a stage. Yeah. And I did I did it one time, albeit in a small village hall. But my legs gave way as I walked up the steps. I couldn't be I was like fifteen. <laughs> but I was driven. Somehow I thought I can't turn around. I've got the suit on. <laughs> I've just joined this little band. And when I got up to the stage, I didn't have to worry because they were screaming at the singer. They didn't notice me. So <laughs> I, I managed to straighten my legs. Yeah. <laughs> And I started enjoying it big time. They were, I was looking at the audience, they're all looking at somewhere else. And if it hadn't been for that, I think I would have run away. If they were looking at me, I would have just run. Yeah. But, but the whole point of what I'm saying is that in the dressing room, you could be as calm as a cucumber until five o'clock, and then six o'clock rolls around, and you hear people coming in, and it starts, and within an hour, you're shaking. Yeah. And that's when you reach for the, a little bit of comfort. Mm-hmm. And if you let that get to you, then you're on the slippery slope. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to ask you, I found that, the, like I was telling you before, I found this Rolling Stone profile of you in 1971, and it has this description of you that just after having spoken to you for the last hour here, I don't, it doesn't line up with what this says then. I was curious what you thought of this. It's, Jeff Beck has the reputation of being the epitome of smarty pants guitarist. He, from, like in the 60s, it's saying. He was cranky, egotistical, he fired musicians, stuffed off stages, was moody, and after a while, only the groupies cared with, with, uh, that he was one of the progenitors or something like that. That's what it says. What do you think of that from 71? Probably spot on for the time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't imagine that, that 
I was uh, coming across that way. Just because I fired players, I had to survive. And if I felt that they were threatening the, the whole evening, then some just didn't hold up. Yeah. You only got to fire somebody once and it gets profiled, then you're a, a horrible bastard. Yeah, it's just funny. Like, like I said, it's, it's clearly not the case. Let's talk about Buddy Rich. He fired people before they played a solo. I don't know who wrote that, but I remember having not much luck with the I felt, especially the British press, felt that I was a sitting duck to be shot down. While bands that like Yes and what's the other Yelpy? Yeah, all that, they were all. And all the, the journalists that I subsequently became to hate, not hate, I would just say depress me, would be latching on like a fan and yet not receptive to anything else. And, they, and then just use you as their firing, or you get the firing line of them. For some cruel reason they picked on me mercilessly in the 70s. I read something where you used to have a guitar on every couch of your house. Still do. How much are you playing every day? Like how every day. Like, every day. Like hours a day? or It, it varies. If I um, go to someone's house for a weekend, I, really, I have to think, oh no, in, in three days you can lose your form mm -hmm. and your fingers start to get soft and not in three days but if you're trying to build up the your fingers you really should keep at it like an hour a day yeah at least it's, if, even if you do 10 minutes 10 minutes 10 minutes 10 minutes and just keep noodling that's okay i wouldn't go so far as to say that like classical violins were eight hours solid that's what they have to do yeah when you think of how utterly Touch sensitive a violin is <laughs> unforgiving in every sense of the word. Oh, yeah, no frets. <laughs> <laughs> no, just imagine trying to play one decent note, <laughs> it doesn't happen. No, it's the guitar is, although frets are there to help you with the, with the tone, right. with the pitch, <clears throat> it's still neat. You know, you, you can't expect to be any good if you don't practice. Yeah, for my style, anyway. And that is our show. Hopefully we did some justice to a legend. Subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and maybe a great review on Apple Podcasts because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.